batteries. Let's talk to Anand Menon, though, now from uh, UK in a changing Europe. Anand, a very good morning to you. Welcome. Hi, Mike. How are you? Yeah, very well indeed. I'm sorry to say that uh, we didn't. We noticed as we thought, this. you're just the guy to talk to about this, that we haven't actually seen you since election night, which is an appalling lapse on our part, I have to say. Uh, so, and it feels uh, first, an awfully long time back, I know, it? I know. I mentioned what's happened since I last spoke to you, right? Um, you know, just on that very night, as, as we watched the Tories get their 80-seat majority, slightly incredulously, I suppose, um, you know, Brexit finally happened, and then suddenly the world has changed altogether with COVID-19 uh, and that long kind of... Uh, period of, of lockdown which appears to be lifting now but I'm, I'm interested today to talk to you about our role in Europe and, and because the Macron visit I think has kind of crystallised for me what it is that we have with Europe because if we look back to the days of Charles de Gaulle and this resistance movement and the, the broadcast that was made and, and ironically you know we now uh, have had the news bad news today that Vera Lynn has died as well you know um, mm. it tells me more about what we have with Europe really in a way do you know what I mean? No, absolutely. And, you know, to quote our last prime minister, we're leaving the European Union. We're not leaving Europe. We're going to remain a neighbour and we're going to keep working with the individual member states as as well as trying to work with the European Union as a whole. I mean, the French are a case in point. Uh, This year is the 10th anniversary of something called the Lancaster House Treaty, which we signed with a French president, which... Which, made, which laid the ground for some really far-reaching cooperation on defence with the French. And it's things like that, I think, that we have to make sure we keep going with. Yes, exactly right. And also culturally, you know, we talk an awful lot about how, um, yes, we have ties with America and, yes, we are kind of to some extent uh, aligned very closely to, to the English-speaking countries of the world. But we've also had such historic uh, and, and memorable ties with Europe that, that it's, it's impossible really to, to, to lose that, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there are very, very deep ties between us and particular European uh, countries. If you think in terms of the levels of travel between us, you think about the number of Brits who live in their countries or their citizens who live over here. Yeah, those relations are not going to suddenly disappear overnight. I mean, it's worth noting that for many of those countries, however, they prioritise the stability, safety, well-being of the European Union. Uh, And so they're not going to do us any favours when it comes to the Brexit negotiations. But at the same time, they'll still want to have links and contacts with us. Yes. Well, you see, that's where maybe you and I will have a slight disagreement, because I think that the way that Boris has set out uh, his his conversation so far with Michel Barnier and others, uh, the way that he said that he wants to see a deal done by the end of the summer. um, It seems to me that we have taken back a bit more control of those negotiations. And and some of the signs that are coming out of people inside the EU uh, are much more, I would say, kind of um, or much less aggressive, shall we say? To an extent, yeah. I mean, I still think, actually, paradoxically, what I'm seeing in the Brexit talks is the fact that the Commission, who are doing the negotiating, are very, very keen to have a deal. But it's the member states who keep saying, actually, you can't compromise on this because this really matters to us. Mm. I still think there could well be a deal. And there could well be a deal done quite soon that is ready to be ratified in the autumn. But both sides are going to have to give some ground. And it's just we just have to wait and see whether they're willing to do that. But I think both sides want a deal. Yes. But let's talk about the French and the British kind of relationship, because, you know, we often hear about the special relationship between the US uh, and the UK. But there's kind of a special relationship in a way between the French and the British, although, you know, yes, we've had our differences. We've had the sort of, uh, you know, the fishing problems. We've we've had the, uh, you know, the beef problems and the CJD problems. We've had the farmers striking. We've had the uh, port workers striking. You know, the French go on strike seemingly no matter what in the summer. Um, How do you see the French and the British? 
British relationship going forward? Because as you said, there were some defence deals that we were doing together. You know, NATO is still a thing. So, you know, it's, 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 it's hard to break away, I suppose, is what I'm saying. It is. I mean, we've got hundreds of years of history with the French, albeit that some of those years of history were, were years of war rather than peace between us. But I think both countries have come to realise since the Second World War that they need to work together, particularly in areas like security. Remember, France and the UK are the only two European members of the Security Council. They're the only two European nuclear powers. So we have interests in common that maybe we don't share with some of the other member states in terms of how we perceive our role in the world. And that makes us very natural partners when it comes to foreign policy, I think. And I'm sure both governments will want to see that continue going forward. Yeah, absolutely right. And what about Macron's own position in France at the moment? Because, I mean, like most leaders uh, during this pandemic, uh, he's lost a bit of popularity. He wasn't that popular to begin with. Uh, we saw the Gilets jaunes protests going on, you know, pretty much all of last year. I guess the lockdown has kind of put paid to that to some extent. Um, but, uh, but what about his future? Well, what I would say is I think the crisis in terms of its impact on politics and politicians has only just begun in mm. the sense that the real crunch for political leaders across the world will not so much be the public health crisis, but the scale of the economic crisis that comes out of the lockdown. It will be the perceived effect effectiveness of governments in dealing with that that I think will ultimately shape how their electorates judge them coming out of this. Yes, because all countries have done slightly different things, haven't they? Taken slightly different measures. Generally speaking, though, most governments will be in massive debt. No, absolutely. I mean, all governments have, have spent inordinate amounts of cash at trying to shore up their job market, to try and keep the economy ticking over even during lockdown. They're going to have to spend more cash when we come out of this to try and get some of those people who've lost their jobs back into employment. We might see quantitative easing being ramped up both here and in uh, the European Union. So we're going to come out with far larger debts, yes. But of course, at the same time, in, in a few years' time, we'll have comparative data on which countries did best. And I think that, on, on, in terms of both how, who did best in the public health crisis and who's recovered quickly economically, will be absolutely fundamental to the electoral prospects of lots of these leaders across Europe and indeed in this country. Yes, and I think it will also have a bearing on the trade negotiations with the EU, partly because, you know, this is not a great time uh, to be sort of offering all or nothing uh, and threatening to sort of throw a hissy fit and walk out of the room because everybody's going to need everybody else's help to the best of their ability, aren't they? Well, yeah, and I think that's true on both sides of the channel. I think both Boris Johnson and the European Union recognise that it's better to have a deal than not have a deal. Mm. What we don't yet know for certain is whether they recognise that to the point of being a little bit flexible when it comes to the well-known red lines that each side have painted on the table. Yes. What's your feeling about those red lines, particularly the fishing uh, business, which we've talked about obviously quite a lot over the last few weeks? Um, where does that go, do you think? Well, on fishing, it strikes me that the EU have got a very maximalist position, which is in all other areas of the negotiations, what the EU have said to us is you're leaving. Things can't be the same when you're no longer a member state. But in fisheries, they say you're leaving, but we want exactly the same access to your waters as we had when you were a member state. So it seems to me that the EU is going to have to give some ground over that. They might also have to give some ground over the idea that they want a long-term solution to the quota issue, because I think our government is insisting, partly for sort of political purposes, for appearance purposes, I think, to say we reserve the right every year to renegotiate your access because that mm. underlines that fact of having taken back control. I think also our government here has to come up with a slightly larger quota for British fishermen because expectations in the fishing communities are very, very high. But bear in mind, like in so many areas, the key thing about fisheries 
is that we are interdependent. We sell the majority of fish we catch, we import the majority of fish that we eat. And so it makes sense on both sides to find a solution because it would be in both our interest to do so. Yes, indeed. And I often wonder as well, because the, the British fishing fleet is not what it was uh, many, many moons ago, and it's not as big uh, as, say, the Spanish or the French, um, it may well be that we can't actually fish that much more in terms of the amount that we pull out of the water, but we could charge them more money to, to, to have access to it. There are all sorts of ways of coming to a deal. And you're right, we don't have the capacity to get all the fish out of our waters that we could at the moment. So we're going to have to let some other people in to fish for us. It's worth bearing in mind that, yes, the fishing industry is small. It's politically very, very totemic, though, partly as a result of the referendum campaign. You remember Nigel Farage and his boat on the Thames during that campaign. Uh, And also its productivity and profitability is greater than it's ever been. So there are fewer people doing the fishing but actually their profitability is greater because they've become more efficient. Yes, and talking of Nigel Farage and boats, uh, I wonder whether Boris Johnson will, uh, will raise the issue with uh, uh, Emmanuel Macron of the boats that continually come still from the French coast to the English southern coast, uh, full of uh, illegal uh, immigrants, basically. And the French supposedly are cooperating with the British, and Pretty Patel tells us um, that less of them are coming uh, than there were, uh, and that some of them are being stopped from coming by the French. But it's still a problem, isn't it? It is, but it's a long coastline and very hard to police. And remember, the French are bound under their international commitments not to do things that will cause harm to these people. So in many cases, if you have people on a rickety dinghy being approached by a French naval vessel, and those people threaten to throw themselves into the sea if they are boarded, Mm. the French Navy have no option but to escort them because they are bound by the provision of not doing harm. Yes. The question I get asked all the time on this show by uh, by callers is is why is it that they can seek asylum here uh, or come to this country having landed in Europe somewhere else um, and, and not settled there? Well, of course, there is an EU agreement between member states called the Dublin Convention, which means that uh, asylum seekers have to seek asylum in the first state in which they land. But given the scale of the asylum problem that we've of the refugee problem that Europe has faced over the last few years, that's been, let's say, pulled to breaking point. Uh, And even amongst EU member states themselves, there is a real fight going on about whether or not there should be more burden sharing when it comes to migrants arriving in the southern countries. And the Mm. Maltese and the Italians and the Greeks in particular are getting very annoyed with some of their northern neighbours for, as they see it, not doing their fair, not taking their fair share of refugees in. No, exactly right. And lockdown-wise, tell us what it's been like for you, Anand. I see you've uh, grown a bit of a beard, uh, which is very handsome on you, I would say, without uh, fear of... That's my lockdown protest. (laughs) My beard goes when the barber's open uh, and when I can go to the pub again. Yeah, right. Well, hopefully that will be sometime in the next month, it seems to me, um, unless there's some kind of, you know, second wave problem and, and, uh, you know, it looks as though the government are going to be under more and more pressure to to lift more and more of the restrictions. But in terms of... um, Business, what are you hearing from people in terms of uh, the, the businesses that you're in? I mean, academia has obviously taken a massive hit. You know, they're all too busy marching around uh, trying to get Peter Hitchens off the streets. <laughs> but apart from that, um, you know, we are kind of feeling like we're getting somewhat back to normal. Yeah, um, you know, I miss normal, I have to say. I mean, I've, I've had a perfectly nice time. We've got we've got a garden. The house is fine. We get on. So lockdown has been perfectly pleasant. I must mm. say I'm slightly missing getting into London because I'm in Oxford now. I'm very much missing pubs and restaurants and I can't wait for them to open again. I think I'm just about ready to start venturing out again Mm. uh, when I'm allowed. But uh, yeah, the economic impact on universities is going to be huge because I think most universities are now 
thinking in terms of doing teaching online for at least the first term of next year. Mm. Then there's the question of whether if you're teaching online, you can charge the same fees, whether students are going to turn up at all. Particularly, lots of universities in this country are very, very dependent on foreign students. Yes, I was going to say that. Yeah, And they're not coming, or at least they're not being told they can come at this point. Yeah, and everyone's expecting a massive drop in the numbers of foreign students. There are some uh, people forecasting a drop in the number of domestic students who, you know, people might think, why should I go to university to study from home for the first term or conceivably longer? Why don't I just go traveling for a year or work for a year, then go to university? So there is going to be a massive hit to university incomes. And we don't know the scale of it yet, but I imagine there are some tough decisions facing those very well-paid heads of universities ahead of them. Yes, I'm sure. Absolutely right. Anna, great to talk to you again. Thanks very much yeah. indeed. Anna Menon, the director of the UK in a changing Europe.